It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From Fox News, it's The Campaign with Brett Baer. On Sunday night, congressional leaders reached an agreement on a $900 billion stimulus package. The deal, after months of gridlock, will be the first federal stimulus package passed since April. The new COVID-19 relief bill is set to include a stimulus check of $600 for many Americans, $300 in advanced unemployment, uh, jobless assistance, rental assistance, and more. Meanwhile, coronavirus vaccines are being rolled out across the country with essential workers and adults over 75 being prioritized now. We'll start there with our panel, senior Washington correspondent for Politico, Anna Palmer, editor and CEO of The Dispatch, co-host of The Dispatch podcast, Steve Hayes, and founding editor at Washington Free Beacon and AEI resident fellow, Matthew Connetti. Hi, guys. Uh, You know, Matthew, let me start with you. The deal now, it seems like it's going to be put across the finish line here. And a lot of Republicans are saying we could have done this months ago. Fair criticism? Oh, I think so. Absolutely, Brett. Uh, I think what's happened here is uh, Nancy Pelosi basically said it herself. She said that uh, she could make a deal or she felt that she could make a deal after the election with Joe Biden as president. And I think when we look back, we'll see that Pelosi sacrificed upward of a dozen House seats uh, in order to deny President Trump a political win with a pre-election COVID relief package. And now, she, after losing all those House seats, she settled for a package much less than the uh, White House offer earlier this year. Anna, is the sense up on Capitol Hill that uh, there's, this is one bite as an apple, and after uh, President-elect Biden becomes President Biden, there'll be another effort soon thereafter on Capitol Hill? I mean, I think that's certainly the Democrats' hope, right? You saw Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer basically have that sentiment uh, over the weekend saying this is just the first bite of the apple. But I think the reality is the numbers are going to be really tough for them to get anything done. You're going to have a very, very, very slim majority for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The Senate will see what happens in the runoff in Georgia. But again, tight majority probably for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So unless there is a market moving event or something that forces Congress uh, to act, I think we've seen over the last several months that they don't do things even though maybe it's necessary. They're only really doing this now because it's the end of the year and they are trying to get something done before they go back home for the holidays. You know, Steve, do you think that because of all of this, all of the stimulus that has been needed, uh, that suddenly there's going to be more concern about the national debt and deficit, something that both parties have totally abandoned? If you look at the national debt clock, it's $27,515 as of now ticking up and the interest on the national debt obviously going up. Uh, We're in a situation where people need help, but eventually that's going to come back around, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think these are the moments where you think it's okay to run deficits. And, and it, the reason for 
accumulating debt or, or in emergencies precisely like the one that we're in now. I think what's, what's most dispiriting is that you've seen from both parties this lack of interest in, in debt and deficits going back really to you know, five, five years, 2015 time period where Republicans to that point had shown some, I think, some political courage in, in trying to, to push for some entitlement reforms that were politically risky, but which Paul Ryan and his colleagues got into to bills on uh, when they had the majority and then quickly lost interest. Donald Trump ran against uh, that those kinds of entitlement reforms. There, you know, have, there's some skepticism among voters, to be sure. But as you point out, we're $27 trillion in. Uh, at some point, this has to come back in fashion. The cynic in me thinks that Republicans will suddenly find their yeah. deficit reduction voice uh, here now with uh, Joe Biden becoming president. Yeah, I mean, think about this. You know, Republicans, it's only a few cycles ago, Matthew, were running a presidential candidate and a vice presidential candidate in front of debt clocks as campaign events, Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. Um, doing that, that just went way out the window in the Republican Party, let alone the Democratic Party. Yes, it's, it's one of the political lessons Republicans uh, took, uh, perhaps unfortunately, from Donald Trump, who campaigned, as Steve said, against entitlement reform, uh, who did not care much about the state of the national debt um, while he was president, uh, and really seemed to pay no political price. Uh, the debt was not a major issue. And, and the, one of the reasons why the debt isn't as big of an issue right now, Brett, is that for many years, people have been saying that these deficits in debt will lead to rampant inflation. And the truth is, the inflation hasn't arrived yet. Yeah. And until it does, until there's an actual felt cost from this debt on American consumers and voters, I don't anticipate there to be any rally to reform. Yeah. I mean, the debt, not to go too deep in the weeds here, but the debt to GDP ratio in 2000 was 55%. Now it's 129% uh, debt to GDP ratio. So you're right. Eventually it's going to come back in fashion, but it doesn't seem like anytime soon. And what about the politics of operating Congress with small majorities? Nancy Pelosi has got to be careful. She loses three votes in any major issue suddenly she's not there at 218. I mean, I think it becomes almost ungovernable. I mean, to be honest, I think it's going to be very, very tricky for the Biden first term for anything big to get done. You're talking about everything having to have a compromise. The real question I have is going to be, what does the progressive wing of Nancy Pelosi's party do? So far, they have not taken the same strategy as the House Freedom Caucus, the conservative wing of the Republicans in the House who basically joined together to stop their own majority from doing things. Do the progressives actually unite and force her on some of these issues instead of just the rhetoric, but actually force some bills to fall? Pelosi's been very good at keeping them somewhat in check, but I do think there's an agitation that is growing that we are going to see come to manifestation in 2021. You know, Brett, uh, my colleague Haley Bird uh, did some reporting on this last week, and uh, she did an interview with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who actually showed some restraint, said, we know that this potentially gives us leverage as progressives because the margins are slow, so slim, but it's going to be very important for us to choose wisely where we opt to use that leverage, where we opt to sort of use our muscle uh, rather than going all around. So I think what Anna says is, is right. I mean, you're, you're not yet seeing any kind of sort of equivalent of, of the House Freedom Caucus 
just in terms of a willingness to grind Congress to a halt. We'll see how long that that holds with pressure from the progressive left. But that's at least the way that she's starting this next Congress. That's interesting, Steve, because, you know, you, you do look back to the House Freedom Caucus and how John Boehner was often frustrated by uh, he couldn't herd the cats uh, around, you know, one vote, especially if it dealt with anything about increasing the deficit or debt. But on the flip side, Steve, what, you know, couldn't moderates rise up and form their own coalition, Democrats and Republicans who are, you know, like the Abigail Spambergers and the, you know, the, the people who are kind of more in the middle, excuse me, and thereby control the consensus? Yeah, I mean, it, that's interesting. That is one possibility. Certainly, you've seen some moderate Democrats be more outspoken than they have been in the past, um, including and especially Abigail Spanberger. But she's not alone. I think the question is whether there's an appetite for this among the, the, the so-called problem solver caucus, which includes Republicans and Democrats, whether that actually expands and, and there are things to act upon. I mean, certainly if Republicans are able to win the two seats in Georgia and maintain their slim majority in the Senate, it, it does suggest that, you know, it'll be really hard to get anything done. I mean, I think gridlock is always a good bet in Washington. It's always a good bet in, in this Congress. It's a good bet now. But you do wonder if there might be some kind of, of a backlash to all of that gridlock where you have people on both sides who say, hey, there are just some basic things that we need to do. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm talking the House here, but it's easier to see the way forward for that formation of the caucus, Matthew, in, in the Senate. I mean, you've got the Mitt Romneys and the Joe Manchins, you know, the Chris Coons, and perhaps, you know, who knows, Mark Kelly in Arizona or several others. Yeah, Kristen Cinema, also from Arizona. Yeah, it seems to me that a lot of the governance over the next four years, or at least the next two years, rather, will be in the Senate because of the close margins in the House, because of the kind of um, uh, radical nature of some, of some of the House progressives. There, if the Republicans maintain control of the Senate, even if really, I mean, a 50-50 majority with the uh, tie-breaking vote from Vice President-elect Harris, that that's, gives little room for error, um, you're going to see more um, attention being paid to the Senate, like we did with this deal on COVID relief. I mean, just think through some of the big ticket items coming Congress's way in the next year. I assume the House, again, will pass the H.R. 1, the election reform bill. Well, that won't go nowhere in a Republican Senate. They want to pass the Equality Act, um, which will extend um, anti-discrimination protections to uh, trans individuals. I don't think that will go anywhere in a Republican Senate. But when you get to uh, immigration, um, unlikely to go anywhere in a Republican Senate. And then energy. And I think uh, when you look at Barack, uh, when you look at President-elect Biden's rhetoric, Brett, you see that he is really staking his administration on climate change in a big way. And I think that's where a lot of the negotiation uh, will take place and any chance for bipartisan reform will have to be and on the issue of um, energy, climate, and then maybe a secondary issue of uh, infrastructure now that we have uh, Transportation Secretary-designate uh, Pete Buttigieg to t talk to the senators in French. <laughs> uh, and uh, meantime, these, as we mentioned, these vaccines uh, rolling out, Pfizer's rollout didn't go as perfectly as uh, was projected. It's still going. Uh, Moderna now starting. And, you know, possibly a third, Johnson Johnson, uh, coming out probably in January. 
is there a sense that that changes the dynamics of how Washington works once we start getting a sense of where COVID's going to be mid-year? Oh, no, I think right now, really, the debate, you know, is probably, unfortunately, whether or not these members should be taking it. It's the same struggle they had about whether or not they should offer testing in the Capitol, which uh, you know, I've been writing on for months saying that this this was necessary and they, members of Congress aren't just like a regular voter, actually. You know, they, they, they just aren't. And so I think the question, I think, will be the vaccine when it happens. And then, you know, do they start to reopen the Hill in a way where there's offices that are open, that meetings can happen? Um, you know, there's been, it's been the kind of business as usual for to somewhat to some degree with members coming back in for a lot of them for a lot of these big votes. But I think the real question will be, can they flip the script, you know, to some of these other issues like Matt was talking about? Can climate actually take front and center stage? Can an infrastructure, are we gonna have another, you know, months of infrastructure week that we've had under the Trump administration where there's been kind of fits and starts for some of these major policy issues? Or are we just going to be hobbled? and be really focused on COVID economic stimulus and, and things of that nature. I think that will really depend upon how quickly people get the vaccine and how quickly you know the economy recovers. We'll hear from our panel after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Attorney General, uh, Steve, laid down a marker saying he's not going to move forward with the special counsel for either the Hunter Biden investigation or uh, election fraud uh, concerns from uh, the White House. It seemed like he was kind of putting a stake in the ground there. He only has a couple days left, but perhaps that is leading towards kind of moving the administration uh, to Inauguration Day. Uh, Do you get a sense or is this going to continue all the way through January. No, I don't think he's going to move the president. Um, I, I think he's yeah. he's he's making his his argument um, on his way out the door. On the Hunter Biden question, you know, that you can understand uh, potentially a case for a, a, a special counsel. I just think that there's so much that we don't know that he may be privy to that it's hard to really judge um, his decision on that. With respect to the the election and the the claims of fraud and irregularities, I mean, I think what we've seen from from Barr over his tenure is a willingness to make pretty aggressive political arguments defending the president um, on the president's behalf, uh, arguments that made you know, even some conservatives uncomfortable, but an unwillingness to just make stuff up. And I think what you're seeing with these uh, election fraud allegations, including the ones now with you know, the, the, the Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn and Lynn Wood and others, some of this stuff is just made up out of whole cloth. There's absolutely no truth to it whatsoever. And I think Attorney General Barr has said, I'm not going to be party to, to, to uh, giving oxygen to this kind of stuff. It's the responsible decision. Um, one wishes that more people would take uh, his advice, but um, I think he's, he's smart to do it on his way out. Yeah. I mean, Matthew said, it's not that I haven't seen evidence of fraud. I haven't seen evidence of fraud in this election in any state that could overturn the results and thereby saying widespread fraud allegations are not true. I mean, it was pretty definitive. Yeah. And that was the key quote from Barbrett a few weeks ago. And of course, uh, led to um, the president pressuring him uh, to leave his job uh, before the inauguration, which is, I think, Barr wanted to stay 
at least through January 20th. And he even expressed to Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that had President Trump been reelected, he wanted to stay on for a second term. It's a, it's a tragedy um, for those conservatives like myself, who actually thought Bill Barr did a good job and um, admire his, his philosophy of government. Um, and what we, it also leads to what we're seeing right now um, is Trump not only turning on Republicans uh, in the states and Republican election officials, sometimes very minor election officials in the states, he's now turning against his own administration. Um, and let's not forget another uh, quote that Barr said um, was that uh, Russia is responsible for this uh, huge uh, cyber hack that we're just beginning to see the, 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 the full con- uh, full scope of. Um, and there, there he was agreeing with Mike Pompeo, um, who said the same thing in an interview with Mark Levin over the weekend. And how does President Trump respond to this? Well, he... By those cavalier tweets over the weekend, tagging Mike Pompeo and saying, "Oh, Russia, Russia, Russia! It, who knows? It could have been China." This is a this is a, a unfortunate way for the president to spend his final month in office. And uh, how is this all perceived on Capitol Hill? I mean, is is uh, Donald Trump's power, his voice, his megaphone, uh, despite eighty million plus? Uh, Twitter followers and whatever the whole social media gambit is as far as people following him, uh, is, does it seem less as far as the influence it has on even conservative members in Trump districts? Absolutely. I think we're really starting to see the exit of Donald Trump's stage left and Republican members of Congress are realists for the most part. I think you've seen particularly, you know, after the Electoral College spoke, even, you know, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell then congratulated Biden and Kamala Harris. And I think that was a key moment that a lot of people were waiting for. It didn't happen right away, but it was a real turning of the page. McConnell has also suggested to his conference that, you know, trying to have some shenanigans on January 6th and not certifying it is is not going to be a great vote or a look for Republicans. So I think there's certainly still a handful of Trump loyalists who are going to be with him until the end. But clearly, most Republicans, and particularly in the Senate, are really ready and exhausted by the Donald Trump presidency. You know, there's uh, some of them that are publicly speaking out about it that are probably in a more of a minority of just kind of you have the Mitt Romneys of the world who are, are, are in such a different place where the Republican Party is. But in general, Republicans are ready to turn the page. Mm-hmm. Last thing, categorize where you think uh, Georgia is, Steve, uh, in these runoffs. And obviously this and what the president says publicly puts a squeeze, frankly, on, on the Republican candidates down there. As he says, you know, the Georgia governor and the secretary of state didn't do enough. Um, now... Kelly Leffler and David Perdue are answering questions about all that. Yeah, I mean, th- this is the kind of situation where the, the outcome should be pretty easy to guess. In a special election in a still a red-leaning state um, with two candidates running at once to determine who controls the Senate. This should be a layup for Republicans. And the fact that it's not a layup for Republicans, I think, speaks volumes about the divisions inside the party. I mean, you have the president attacking the secretary of state, lower uh, election officials, the governor, the governor trying hard not to attack the president, but being critical sometimes of other Republicans, the, the Republican 
chairman in the state, David Schaefer, going after uh, the secretary of state, but not the governor. I mean, this is, it is like uh, intra-Republican battle down there. And I think what it does, the, the long and short of it, I don't think voters are paying a ton of attention to the, you know, every twist and turn of, of those fights. But what it does is it, I think, diminishes the strength of the argument that Republicans should be making. Um, which is we need to, Republicans need to keep control of the Senate and this is how you do it. They're making that argument, but at the same time, they're asking voters, you know, some voters who believe very strongly, erroneously, but very strongly that the state was stolen from Donald Trump to go out and vote in an election uh, that won't be rigged this time. It's a very difficult argument to make. So I think it's a, it should be an easier path than Republicans have made it. Matthew, you're not seeing a lot of polls down there, and there's a part of me that's very thankful for that because I'm kind of sick of looking at polls and, and guessing whether they're right or not. Um, there have been a few, and it's tight. Uh, there's a ton of money being poured in on both sides. Where do you put it? Uh, I'd say it's a toss-up with a slight lean Democrat edge, Brett. And uh, you're right. Uh, the polling industry has been AWOL, thankfully, um, and that's because it's still smarting from – uh, it's uh, poor showing in the election. Uh, but the polls that we have basically show it to be a toss-up uh, in both races. I say it's lean Democrat, uh, not only for the reasons that uh, Steve mentions, but also um, war I think all of the candidates have flaws and that th those flaws uh, may benefit the challengers uh, more so than the incumbents. And um, the, uh, there's also the possibility, though, that the races will split. Uh, which is, let's not forget, uh, Purdue almost avoided a runoff. I mean, he came very close to, to yeah, meeting. a couple meeting, thousand votes. Exactly. So I think he does have a, a, an edge over Ossoff. The, the race to watch is the Loeffler-Warnock race, where um, you have, uh, you know, an appointed uh, senator. She's never won an election. Uh, she has liabilities. She's, stuck, she's really uh, sticking to the Trump won uh, myth. Um, for the presidential election. And she's up against uh, Reverend Warnock, who, um, despite having uh, a disturbing ideological record for, for someone like myself on the right side of the aisle, he's a pretty good candidate. I mean, he's, uh, he, he's um, likable, uh, he, he knows his material, uh, and he's good with the soundbite. So um, I, I might even give him a slight edge. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I doubt you're going to, well, we'll see. There could be these unicorn voters who go into the, the booth in Georgia and, and vote one race one way and the other race the other way. But most, I think, are going to go in and, and vote the ticket. Um, and Anna, we'll, we'll end with you. You know, those ads saying, and they're, I think they're done by McConnell's uh, pack, saying that uh, in Georgia we need to prevent a majority leader Chuck Schumer and a Senate banking committee chairman Bernie Sanders uh, one would think that would be powerful in a state like Georgia. I think it is. I think the Republicans' problem for the first part of this race has been that Donald Trump wouldn't concede, so you couldn't, they couldn't kind of credibly make that argument, right? You couldn't say that, that it was going to be a Joe Biden, Mitch, you know, Chuck Schumer, Washington, and you, you need to elect Kelly uh, so that she can, you know, have Republicans be in power. I kind of disagree. I think actually Republicans have a, a, a real strong chance here. I think that 
you know, Biden did well, but he's not on the ticket. And it'll be very interesting to see right now you have Democrats up in some of the early voting, but Republicans are making inroads and certainly are taking it very seriously, pouring a ton of money into it. So I think it's, I would give the edge. I don't like to make predictions. Uh, I think it's a dangerous place for journalists to be, but it seems to me, if you look at the history of the state, Republicans certainly have an advantage. Well, we'll be down there uh, starting on the third and cover all of the stuff from down in Atlanta for the big election on the 5th. Hey, listen, thank you very much. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Anna and Steve and Matt, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.